to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, that's in the Old Testament. Um, if you don't know what that is, you can use the table of contents. That's not a big deal. Uh, you can go to uh, the very beginning, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Right there. So it's, it's very early on in the beginning of the book, Judges chapter 3. Uh, we are going to look at the entire chapter today, uh, chapter 3. But um, since it is lengthy... Um, and 31 verses. I'm just going to read the first half together, and then we'll study all of it together. So, But you should know before we go into the sermon that a dream of mine has come true today. Um, ever since I ever read the book of Judges, I don't know how long ago, and I saw the, this story in Judges chapter 3, I've always wanted to preach it, and I've been in ministry 20 years, and so finally uh, I've approached the chapter that has been the dream of mine. So to be able to preach, if you know anything about Ehud, the left-handed man, you'll know why it's a very funny story to preach. So we have finally reached a dream of mine. I have small dreams, I guess you could say, but nevertheless, you could also say big dreams. Hey, preaching. So um, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to stand right now. We're going to read the first 11 verses together, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And we'll study the whole, the whole text, uh, but we'll look at verses 1 through 3, um, read verses 1 through 11. As I read, at the very end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And when I say that, uh, we're doing, I want you to say out loud, thanks be to God. And so you're really doing two things by saying that. One, of course, you're thanking the Lord that he'd be so kind to speak to us and give us his word to teach us so we can know who he is. But second, uh, as you say, thanks be to God, let it be a signal in your heart and mind that you're saying, God, the things that you teach me and show me in your word today, I want to say yes and be obedient to. So starting at chapter three, verse one, chapter three, verse one. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Belhermon as far as Lebohamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know uh, whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their, by their fathers in the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took them for themselves as wives and their, and their own daughters, and they gave their sons, and they served the gods. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, for they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cush, that guy, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cush eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved, for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cush, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand uh, prevailed over Cush. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. We ask that you would come now by the power of your spirit and teach us um, and help us see and understand how this particular text, which happened long time ago, uh, certainly has major application to our lives uh, and that we can um, see and understand what it means to be offered real gospel rest. And for anyone here that is uh, struggling, anyone here that is wrestling with wanting forgiveness, wanting rest, that they would, <clears throat> that 
they would see and receive it that it only comes from Christ. And for those that are believers who are still struggling day in, day out to remind themselves who they are in Christ, that they can see and understand what's being offered to them by Christ every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, this has been a dream of mine. We'll get to the second half. Uh, but before we get to it, as we're picking up uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 really finishes that first kind of division of the book of Judges. Judges is really largely divided into three large divisions. Chapter 1, verse 1, down to 3, 6 is kind of the opener, the introduction to how they got into the land of Canaan and how they don't necessarily obey. Once you get to chapter 3, verse 7, right there, kind of the middle of our text, it goes all the way through chapter 16, verse 31. That's the second division, and that's really kind of the unfolding story of the Judges and how the Judges uh, start off with good people and have kind of a little downward spiral of who they are, whether it be moral or or, or different reasons. But uh, the way they're listed in the book of Judges, we start with who we're going to see here in chapter chapter 3, verse 7, Othniel, as kind of the the number one judge and really one of the the best model of all judges. And as you continually go down, there's a downward spiral for for different reasons, uh, all the way down. Uh, And then as you get to chapter 17, you kind of see the conclusion of the book of Judges and how it gets worse and worse and worse. And the reason why the book of Judges has been written in this particular way, it tells us at the very end, uh, in, in chapter 21, verse 25, and it says, at that time, Israel had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes. So the book of Judges is pushing all of the, us forward to help us see just how depraved uh, the people of God will come when there is no king and they end up doing in their depravity what they think's right in their own eyes. So in the, in the Old Testament, that's certainly the case. And it helps us see who are um, the people of God that without King Jesus in our lives, we will certainly do what's ever right in our own eyes. And it helps us see just like they wanted and desired an earthly king, but only points to the eternal king. We also have a need for a king, which is King Jesus, which saves us from our sin, which keeps us from doing what's right in our own eyes, but instead puts us on the path towards righteousness or forgives us of our sin and and helps us walk in sanctification and becoming more and more Christ-like. So that's really the book of Judges uh, as a whole kind of big idea. Now, we're starting here at chapter 3, verse 1, and we're really picking up from something that happened last week. If you look at chapter 3, we'll start at verse 21. He's telling them because of their disobedience that he's not going to drive out for them the nations any, for, uh, any longer that Joshua left when he died. And it says in verse 22, why? In order to test Israel by them, whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the, the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. So uh, just a big timeline. I, I got a new timeline from the previous one. This one maybe is easier to read, but it helps us kind of understand where Judges falls in the book of the Bible. And specifically in the Old Testament, towards the first first five books, uh, and then you've got the others. Well, you can see it's early. So you've got creation. And as you get them out of Egypt, you can see the book of the judges start here. We don't even have the kings yet. And we don't have the division of the two of the 12, but we're right here. And so it's before the kings come, you have this period of the judges right here until you get to the end. Um, and so it starts really early. And as they left the promised land, and they're coming, or they left Egypt and they're coming into the promised land. The key commandment of God is when you get there, there's going to be a whole lot of people there that are wicked and evil people. They're not good people in this land of Canaan. And what you're supposed to do is drive all of them out. You can see they all end in ites. You can see it's there in verse five, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. There's even more. There's a whole lot of ites. Uh, but basically he's saying these people are wicked people. They're not good people. And you need to get 
uh, all of them driven out completely. I'll be with you. I'll help you. But be obedient to drive them out. If you don't, it tells us in Joshua chapter 23, if you don't, then the end result is that you'll intermingle with them by marriage and also you'll adapt their religion to yours and it'll be some kind of syncretistic relationship that you'll have where you'll become, instead of just a monotheist who worships the one true God only, you'll become polytheist, which you worship God and many other gods. And of course, God cannot stand that. And so he's given them the command in Joshua 23 right before we get in here. When you get there, drive them all out. And so what he says here in chapter 3 verse 1 is that he didn't drive them out. God didn't. He left them there to see if the people of God are going to be obedient. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is that all Israel who had experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. So you've got this... uh, this kind of perpetual generation that had happened where the first people, this generation had fought wars and they had seen God move and they understood how he does. But the next generation hadn't. And so God said, I'm not going to take these people out of your land. I want the next generation to learn to be obedient like the previous generation. And he says, I want them to know war, to teach war to those who have not known it before. And if you you hear that in verse two, you could take a pause and say, why would God want people to know war? War is awful. War is terrible. What is it that God wants these people to understand about war? And normally that is the case. War is terrible, right? But in the Old Testament, when God goes and sends his people to war, it's a different thing. God, when he's with them in their war, it's just a blowout. It's just like, I want you to know war. But what he really wants them to know is what we saw in chapter 2, verse 10 last week, which is, it says, all the generations that were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them. The reason why he wants the next generation to know war is in 2.10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for them in Israel. So the reason why he wants them to know war is not because he wants them to be great soldiers because when God's on your side in war, specifically in the Old Testament, you just blow them out. They have no chance. You can, just, you can just knock them all down like bowling pins. What he wants them to know specifically is to know the Lord their God. So when they go out to war, they have God and they can see this generation, not the previous, see what the Lord God had done for them. You can see, they can see the work that he done, had done for them in Israel. And so what, the reason why God wants them to know war We should be careful. It isn't that God wants them to experience the horrible atrocities of war just so they can say, oh, we've had horrible atrocities of war. We we know what war feels like. Instead, he wants them to understand what what happens when God works for them on their behalf and he wants them to know it for themselves, not through their parents' experience, but for themselves. So if you grew up in a Christian home, there's a uh, a direct application. If you grew up in a Christian home, this truth can be all too real for you. There was probably a moment where in middle school or in high school and perhaps even in college where you had to experience the Lord's work on your own. You could no longer uh, identify or believe in Christianity because your parents did. You, you couldn't rely on your parents' faith in your own life anymore. Maybe there was a crisis of faith for you in college or maybe even into your 20s. But nevertheless, uh, you had to finally experience for yourself the forgiveness and mercy that's been offered to you. And God wanted Israel to know this for themselves, not through their parents, but for themselves. He wanted them to know him. And in the same way, mark this down, he wants us that as well. You will never love and serve the Lord your God wholeheartedly with your own life until the grace of our Lord Jesus has experienced 
been experienced firsthand by you. Not through your parents' experiences, not through your whoever spiritual father or mother was, but instead firsthand by you. And then your heart has been thoroughly transformed. That's what he wants for them. And that's what he wants for you. That's what he doesn't want you to half-heartedly follow him. He doesn't want you to experience. He wants you, whenever you hear and remind yourself of the good news or you hear it for the first time, that Christ Jesus gave his life for you on the cross, that you were and I were wicked sinners before that, dealing with the weight of sin and that we would have perished eternally forever, that Jesus went to the cross and all of that sin was put on him. Therefore, all of his righteousness was given to us. And he wants you to feel that. He wants you to know that. He wants you to experience firsthand the overwhelming gratitude of, I can't believe you would die for me, Jesus, and give me new life and offer to me eternal rest, eternal shalom forever. And he wants them to understand that. So in verses one through four, we see the test is given. The nations are put in place. The Lord's going to see if they're going to obey. And they were, uh, he gave them, it says uh, in verse four, they were for the testing of Israel, know that Israel obeyed the commandments of the Lord and by which he commanded their fathers of the hand of Moses. When you go into that land, drive them all out. Are you going to obey? What's going to happen? Well, we see immediately, verse 5, what happens. They don't. We see in verse 5 and 6, the failure described. Instead of obeying God and passing the test, they decided to disobey. So the people of Israel lived among, not drove out, lived among all the ites. Verse 6, and when they did that, they even did what he exactly told them not to do in Joshua 23, I think it's 13. Um, their daughters took for themselves for wives and their own daughters gave to their sons. So they intermarried with the, with the wicked, evil <clears throat> pagans. And what happened? Idolatry. And they served their lowercase gods. The people of God who know the true God, Yahweh, became idolaters. And so at that point, uh, the writer of the book of Judges enters into us, into this kind of new division. And now we start seeing the judges and they start this, this judges uh, cycle. So go ahead and put up the cycle real fast so we can get it. I showed it to you last week, but just so you know, we have in verse one, kind of the cycle that goes down. The people are going to rebel, which we just saw. God gets angry at them. Oppression comes. When God gets angry, he sends oppression through these pagan nations, all the different ites. Whenever that happens, the people don't like it. They cry out in repentance. God sends a judge. Salvation comes through the judge. He brings peace to the land. For as long as he's alive, there's peace to the land until the judge dies. And when the judge dies, the way the book of Judges is, then the people rebel, but their rebellion is a step further down. A step further down. And as I said, it's a downward spiral of depravity of the people of God. And that's how it is. Now, when you hear judges, don't think Supreme Court, don't think Kennedy or whoever it is. that just, like, It's not that. It's not a dude with a black robe or a girl with a black robe. Instead, it's a warrior. It's a warrior soldier that's been lifted up by God for the people of Israel to lead them out into war and fight whichever ite they're killing that day and drive them out and get rid of them. That's what a judge is in the Old Testament book of Judges. It's a someone that is raised up by God to be a soldier. When we come into Othniel, we see the first judge. <clears throat> and the reason why he's the first is because the writer wants us to see this guy is really, of all the judges that have been raised up, uh, the Maybe the, the best example or the, the, the best example of a wholehearted disciple. We met him, a complete disciple or a complete judge, you could say, um, in the book of Judges. We met him in chapter 1 where he uh, obeyed 
the, the command of Caleb and, and he got a, a wife from it, Aksa, a godly woman that was given to him. And he, we can see that he's raised up as the first judge to start here. Now, as we look at this, um, we're going to see really kind of four, four things. So now we're going to look at the, the three different judges. You can go ahead and put up number one, Othniel. And we're going to see four different kind of things that the Lord does here uh, in, in this first judge. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, for they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. Uh, and Asherah. So they, they do a double evil here. It says, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they were following God. They forgot the Lord, their God. So they, they move away from worshiping them and they didn't just stay in this neutral place, but instead they turned and they started serving the Baals and the Asherah. So they left Yahweh and then they also became idolaters. The, the double evil that they did when it served, they served the Baals. That's just lowercase gods or Lords. The Asherah is a, uh, a goddess of fertility. So they, they worship many of these, these Baals and these gods. <clears throat> Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel when that happened. And it says he sold them into the hand of Cush, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served him for eight years. Because of this disobedience, they got put into a, uh, a place where they had to serve a pagan king for eight years. So the first thing that we see in this Othniel story is God sent trouble in, in verses seven and eight. God sent, now it, it definitely came from the hand of God. There's no doubt about it. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled and he sold them. God sold them. So there's no doubt about it that the Lord did this. Now, when you hear this, you might say, well, why would God, uh, who loves them, do such an act of oppression to them? Why would God send trouble to his people? We need to realize that when God sends trouble to his people, it's not some kind of cosmic payback where he's mad at them meant to uh, punish them. God's sending trouble is always meant for the point of redemption. He sends them and had he not sent them this trouble, they wouldn't get to the point where immediately after that it says, but the people of God cried out to the Lord. The, the cried out to the Lord in the, in the book of Judges means they cried out in repentance. So it was God's kindness by sending them trouble that helped them realize we don't like being pushed down by Cush. So now we're going to cry out to you in repentance. So it was God's good hand that sent them into trouble so that they would... Uh, they would repent. And some of you, I think, need to hear that this morning, that if the Lord's judgment for your particular willful sin that you're in right now has come on you right now, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a son or daughter of the king, he's not giving it to you as some kind of cosmic payback because he's mad at you. I would say it's the opposite. The Lord has sent this for the express purpose that you would seek redemption in Christ and Christ alone and know that the Lord loves you more than anybody. And the reason why he sent it is because he loves you so that you would be drawn back to him. The Lord loves you. And so he sent trouble. And then you can see not only did he send trouble to them, but he immediately sends them leadership because he loves them. So in verse 8b, we'll come up here. God sends them leadership. Therefore, uh, I'm sorry, verse nine, when the people cried out, the Lord raised up a deliverer to them for the people of Israel who saved them. He sent Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He raised up a deliverer to them. So what we see here is that the only thing that the people contribute to their salvation is their cry. They screamed out in repentance. And that's the same for us. The only thing that we offer to, because God's the God of salvation, is crying and repenting and and. and 
putting our faith in Christ and he's the one who leads us to repentance and does all the other stuff um, to bring us to salvation. As Tim Keller says, this is the right response to oppression, which is crying out to God, to see God's hand and working behind and through it and to look honestly at ourselves and to cry out to the Lord for revival. And he raises up here, Othniel. Um, He's a wholehearted disciple of God. And uh, Othniel comes first as a kind of a, a contrast to Samson that would come later. Othniel loves his wife. Uh, he has one wife and he is a good model of that compa- compared and contrasted to Samson. Uh, the Reformation Study Bible says this way. Othniel is the epitome of a godly judge being married to the godly Aksa. He forms a sharp contrast for, with Samson. The first judge is from Judah and is the only judge without an explicit failure in his covenant keeping. The success of Othniel, the judge of Judah, anticipates the future enthronement of King David and King Jesus also from Judah. So here we have Othniel raised up from the family of Judah. Ultimately, David will come, but ultimately King Jesus comes from Judah. And he's the only judge that comes from the tribe of Judah. So Othniel, in a lot of ways, um, points us to King Jesus. He's a, he's a shadow of the reality. Uh, he helps us understand that it's really all about Christ. And so he leaves it here in verse 9 where he says, um, and it says, he, he raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Interestingly enough, that who in the Hebrew is left ambiguous on purpose. So who saved them? Well, I guess it was Othniel, but ultimately it wasn't just Othniel. It was God himself through Othniel. So the point is that God saves through chosen leaders. God has specifically saved us through Christ. Um, And so after that, you can see this next thing he does is, well, we'll go back just to remind you. God sent trouble. God sent leadership. And now in verse 10, he's going to send his spirit. Now, there's a little bit of a difference in the way he sends his spirit in the book of Judges to us, than to us, but we, we'll see that in a second. In verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cush, king of Mesopotamia, in his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cush. And so we see here that when God sent his spirit, he did two things when he sent his spirit on to Othniel. One, he gave him status before the people. Two, he empowered him for the work that he needed to do. Watch. You can see first that he uh, gave him status. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. That means Israel recognized him now as a judge, a soldier that's going to lead these people to drive out these particular enemies. And He empowered him. Not only did he give him the status, he equipped him or empowered him for the work necessary. He judged and he went out to war. And here it is. The Lord gave Cush into Othniel's hand and his hand prevailed. So whenever the Holy Spirit came upon him, he gave him status and equipped him for work. Now, uh, maybe one of the best ways to kind of understand the Lord's work in the book of Acts uh, in the book of Judges, to look at the book of Acts and see how it, and since we just studied Acts, I'll give you one example of how the difference is. Whenever uh, the Holy Spirit's given to someone in the book of Judges, it's given to that one person. But in contrast, when the Holy Spirit is given to God's people in the book of Acts, it's given to all of the church. You can see, hear this in chapter 4, as is Acts 4.31. And when they prayed, in the place of which they were gathered together, it was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so in the same way, when Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came upon uh, Othniel and gave him status before the people and empowered him to do the work, the Holy Spirit does the same for us. He reminds us, he doesn't give us status before the people, but instead he reminds us of the status that we already have in Christ. In other words, he gospels you. 
He tells you, this is who you are in Christ. Don't forget that. You need to remember that Christ has defined you now as innocent, as righteous. Sure, you have sin, you're working out, and you're, you have to go through sanctification. But this is who you are in Christ now. You are this particular status, and don't forget it. And the Holy Spirit will constantly, constantly remind us of that. But he also, like he empowered um, Othniel for the work, he empowers us for the work that we have. He, he equips us for the work that he's actually called us to do. So just like the Holy Spirit's given to Othniel, he's given to us and reminds us of our status in Christ and he empowers us. And then as we keep going, as that happens, whenever he sends oppression, whenever he sends leadership and then he sends his spirit, the last thing through the deliverer, through the judge, he sends his people rest. He sends his people peace and you can see it. And so the land had rest for 40 years and then Othniel died. So when he sent him rest, for the people of Israel. This was real rest. Temporary. It was 40 years. It wasn't, it wasn't forever. It didn't last. It, but it was real rest. It was real shalom that was being offered to them through the judge. But the problem is that when their leader died, the rest died. The rest died. And so for God's people, they need a leader that won't die in order for them to have eternal rest. And the good news is that this is what Jesus does for us. Unlike Othniel, Jesus came back to life and lives forever in heaven, on the throne room of heaven. And so the, the shalom that he offers us isn't just 40 years. It's not 80 years like Ehud, but instead he offers us eternal rest. The kind of rest described to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 30, where it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy read, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You and I were created with a soul to be everlasting. We have a starting point. We're not eternal. We have, we have a starting point, but we live forever into the future. And so our soul needs to be offered eternal rest or everlasting rest. And the only one that can do that is Jesus because he is like these judges. He's also the prophet, priest, king. He's the Messiah. He's all of it. And so the rest that he offers us because he died for us on the cross doesn't end after 40 years like Othniel, but instead lasts forever. That's good news. Now, we go to the next judge at Ehud. Uh, and his name's Ehud, not to be confused with Pehud. Uh, I'm right-handed, he's left-handed. And so that's, what's, that's the main difference. I am a warrior nonetheless. I'm just kidding, I'm not. So uh, we've gotten to, I know it's ridiculous. It's a dad joke. They're over here rolling their eyes like, oh, he's so dad. Anyway, um, so verse 12, they're not really, but I'm sure they are. Verse 12 verse, through verse 30, this is where we've gotten to, which is my favorite text and judges maybe, and the one I've been looking forward for 20 years. So um, before we get into it, you need to know that when we read through it, it's a uh, kind of like the passion of the Christ is kind of rated R for violence and kind of like, oh, is that in there? Like it's, it's a little bit like that, uh, but also um, it's humorous. It's very humorous. And <clears throat> as this occurred in the 1300s and yet was written, by, written about by, we assume Samson, we don't know who the book, book of Judges was written by some 200 years after the events, the writer that looked back at that thing 200 years when he wrote the book of Judges intentionally wrote it a certain way. He wrote it so that when we look at it, we would laugh. We would think that this is actually pretty funny. And he wrote it so that we would really think um, Eglin, the king that was, that was oppressing the people of God, was kind of a buffoon. The, the, the name Eglin, if it's mispronounced either way, can also be 
can also sound like bull. It can also sound like rotund. And we see in verse 17, the last three words, that the king that was oppressing him was a very fat man, is what it says in verse 17. And so uh, one commentator says this. His name's Dale Davis. Dale Davis on this particular story of Ehud. He said, try to hear this story as an Israelite would have heard it and told it. An Israelite who was oppressed by these people for 18 years, who couldn't stand this guy that was oppressing them. He said, try to hear it like an Israelite who for 18 years had been oppressed and taxed to the bone under the blubbery King Eglin. An Israelite, therefore, living in persisting poverty, eking out some kind of borderline existence with the hill country of Ephraim. Then you won't be surprised, but rather will understand the pure enjoyment the people of Israel had. The devil devastating humor, the biting satire, the sheer hilarity of this narrative. That is one trouble with all the commentaries. This is him writing as he's writing his commentary. He said, most of them are just so serious of the eight or nine that he consulted as he wrote this. None of them seem to get the joke, which is Israel found this story entertaining and hilarious. And so I also find it very funny uh, and you'll see why. So here we get to verse 12 and what we see and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon. This is, a, this is a, a wicked king to come against them because they hadn't done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So before we even continue, let's just, let's just make one small important comment. We see in verse 7, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because they forgot the Lord their God. The reason why they forgot is because the previous generations... Uh, Believe the gospel, they assume the gospel, the next generation for, just forgets the gospel. The previous generation didn't teach the next generation to know the Lord their God and treasure what it means to be saved by God. And then we get into verse 12, the same thing happens. So uh, before we go any further, there's a great important application that we need to make, which if you, if you ever want to remember, it's just really simple. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, it's all twos. 2 Timothy 2.2 is where Paul makes a great argument for generational discipleship. I want you to notice how many generations are covered in discipleship in one verse. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, I'll read one. You then, my child, being strengthened by the grace of those in Christ Jesus. That's Paul talking to Timothy. And what you've heard from me, that's Paul, in the presence of many witnesses talking to Timothy, and trust to faithful men. So Timothy, I want you to trust to those in faithful men. And what will those faithful men do? Who will be able to teach others also? Paul to Timothy, the faithful men teach others. That's four generations in one verse that Paul's making a, just a really simple uh, argument, if you will, to, to uh, Timothy to say generational discipleship is absolutely crucial because if you don't, what happens in verse 7, what happens in verse 12, the next generation doesn't know the Lord their God. They don't treasure the good news of the gospel and they forget, which means for those of you and primarily second service, it's filled with people who do this for us in first service in our kids' area, what you're doing is crucial for us. It's crucial. Uh, you may think you're just wiping snot off noses and changing diapers and singing songs, and you are. I get that. But you're also doing crucial work for the kingdom that the next generation knows the Lord their God, that they treasure the Lord their God, and they don't fall away. They don't fall away. So your work as a children's worker here at Remedy Church it's crucial for us. You are sowing seeds of the gospel into them at young ages so they don't walk away in their teen years or their college years. And so an argument's being raised for generational discipleship and praise the Lord that you're stepping up to the story. Here we go. So here we see that uh, Othniel is gone. More ites come in to defeat Israel. They raise up this, uh, he said, you can gather the Ammonites and the 
uh, Amalekites and went to defeat Israel. And they took possession of the city of the Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. They are pressed by this very fat man, Eglon, which can also mean bull, which or sound like bull. It can also sound like uh, Rotan. So, uh, this story is being told on purpose uh, in this particular way. So we see, again, the judges' cycle starts. People are oppressed. Gonna, we're going to go through the cycle again. It won't be on the screen, but you've got the cycle now. So the people of Israel, here it is, cried out to the Lord. So they repented. After 18 years, you're like, what took so long? 18 years? Uh, 18 years, by the way, for a man to be in charge uh, is a long time to get fat and not hit the... Uh, the staircases or whatever it's called. So that's, I think that's why, what happened. He, he just didn't exercise anymore and he got really big. So in verse 18, the people of Israel called out to the Lord. They didn't like that they were oppressed. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah. This is hilarious. Uh, it, it says the Benjamite, which means from the right-handed, a left-handed man. From the right-handed, a left-handed man. So it's, he's wanting us to understand this dude's left-handed. Now, some commentators said that he didn't have actually use of his right hand and he was only left-handed. Some others say he's actually ambidextrous. He's both-handed and here he's just going to be left-handed. I lean towards the ambidextrous because when you get to 26 through 30, Ehud leads like the people of Israel out to war and fights valiantly. And I think if you're going to do that, you probably got to have both hands. So I think that he's just left-handed. So all you left-handers, you're awesome like Ehud um, because he's pretty cool. He does some really cool stuff here. This is what he does. The left-handed warrior Ehud. Um, he, which by the way can mean, his name can mean, uh, Ehud can mean, where's the splendor and majesty showing us it's, it's in the Lord our God. So verse 15, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and he raised up for them Ehud, the right, of the right handers, the left handed man for the, uh, Israel sent tribute to Eglon, which is probably required. They probably had to send some kind of amount of money while they were oppressed by this man for the 18 years. So they sent the tribute to Eglon, this, this present they probably didn't want to have to give, uh, through Ehud. And when he went, verse 16, it says, um, here's where the story kind of really begins. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. So just picture a sword with two edges. And it says, a cubit in length is maybe about this long. And he bound it in his right thigh under his clothes. Now, when he made this sword and put it in here, it probably had a hilt, but not a, not a big one. Uh, and we'll see why in a second. And he puts it on his right thigh. Now, when they, he went for the pat down, they probably patted his right leg or his left leg because most people were right-handed. Right hand was really highly lifted in the society. So they would check and see, does he have it? They wouldn't think to check on the left leg. He puts it here. He's a left-handed dude. And he hides it in his clothes. And he goes in and he passes we would assume some kind of pat down or maybe they just didn't see it and maybe they looked or maybe they didn't. But nevertheless, he wants us to know it's on this particular right thigh under his clothes. And they presented this tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And he was a very, very fat man. That's a key uh, thing that he wants us to know. And it says in verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So they left this present that they were given. And he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and he said to the king, hey king, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, the secret message, as I said, the, 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 uh, the judges are listed in presumably in some kind of fashion or order from most godly to least godly or most complete to least complete in some kind of manner. And the reason why Ehud is second, some commentators say, is because here when he says, I have a message for you, he's using some deceit. He doesn't really have like a real message. He's kind of deceitful. Say, I have a message for you. And he's like, okay, everybody leave. He's got a message for me. He's like, oh yeah, the message is, here's a knife to your belly. Uh, and he kills him. So it, it could be, 
he really does have a message for him <laughs> from the Lord. And it's a stomach, it's a knife to the belly, but that's not, certainly that's not what Eglin was thinking the message was. So some people say that the thing that was lacking in Ehud is he used a little bit of deceit here to try to be the judge. You can be the judge of that, whether you think. Um, but he says, I have a secret message you and he commanded silence. And then King Eglin, bad idea, sends all of the attendants out. So it's just Ehud and Eglin in the room. In verse 20, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. That can also be like the throne room, which could in the end here be a double meaning, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and Ehud said, I, I have a message for you. And it says, and he arose from his seat. So Eglin, the big fat man, arose from his seat to get the message. Oh, tell me the message. Here it is. And then this is where it gets awesome. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the belly of Eglin. And verse 22, and it says, and the hilt also went in after the blade. And this is awesome. The fat closed over the blade and he didn't pull the sword out of his belly. So it was, the dude was so huge that when he stuck this cubit long sword knife in him that it literally just like oh I've lost my blade it's just in there I'm just I'm just, I'm just gonna have to leave and then it gives us this this what seems to be a kind of a extraneous superfluous unimportant detail which is actually super important the NIV glosses over it doesn't say it but the ESV comes through for us and the dung came out and the dung came out. Now you think, why is that important? It's actually super important uh, because this will be, and I mean this, I mean this sincerely, the sovereign hand of God to give Ehud his escape. The sovereign hand of God caused big King England to poop himself whenever he stabbed him. And that will be the key piece that lets Ehud escape. So it's sovereignty. It's sovereignty. That sounds strange, but it is. Verse 23, it says, it says, Ehud went to the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked it. So basically what he does is after he stabs him, the dude poops himself and falls on the ground. He is able, Ehud is able to get out of this room. I read the commentaries. I tried to figure out the layout of this room. Uh, Either he was able to lock the door and kind of get out and lock it himself. Or maybe there was a trap door in the floor of the throne room that he gets out. But nevertheless, he locks it before he gets. So when the attendants come back, the door's locked and they're like, oh, he's in there by himself. The door's locked, so we'll just, we'll just kind of wait this out because they smell the poop. And so it says here, um, it says here what happens. And Ehud went out in verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked and smelled the poop, they thought, surely he's relieving himself. And here it is in the closet of the cool chamber. He's literally sitting on the throne. Um, and so, because we smell it. And so it says that he, they just figured he was in there in the bathroom. Now, um, this is where it gets really funny. I think this is probably the most funny part here. Uh, maybe the one of the funniest things in the Bible. Verse 25. And they waited till they were embarrassed. They waited until they were embarrassed. Now, the, uh, the Hebrew, can, this word embarrassed can be translated to writhe in pain. We're not talking about eagling. We're talking about the servants. They literally waited so long that they were writhing in pain, wondering, man, like... What is taking so long here? Like he's either dropping a serious hammer in there or he's dead. Like something's gone wrong. No one is in there that long when they're in the toilet. Like what's going on? However long it is, like you can just wonder how long do you wait? Well, especially when you're the servant and you're waiting. It's not like your contemporary. It's your king. And you're like, we got to give him some extra time. I don't want him to yell at me and tell me because he is a big dude. Like it says that they waited. Now, again, all of this waiting is giving Ehud his, his escape. Because it's obviously a long time. So it says they waited till they're in point of they were embarrassed. 
But he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber. Like, man, this is taking way too long. And then it says, they took the key and opened him. And just thinking as to taking the key, how did they decide <laughs> between them? Like, who's the one that has to actually do the key? I don't want to do the key. You do the key. Not me. Rock, paper, scissors. Oh, man, I have a big debt. I owe you a huge favor. Like, I don't know how they decided, but it was a brave soul that, that opened the door or else he was an indebted soul to the other guy, nevertheless. And so they finally took the key and they opened the door. And what did they find? Their Lord laying dead on the floor and the sovereignty of God when Ehud stabbed him caused this man to poop himself which made his servants wait extra long to the point of embarrassment to where they were writhing in pain and all the while Ehud is long gone no one's going to catch him when they finally catch him oh no he's dead Ehud killed him where is he Ehud's gone he is totally gone and what's he doing he's going back to his people and he's telling everybody guess what I just killed the king we can do this rally the troops we're going to war We're going to win the Lord's with us. And so he has long enough to get out of there. And you can see it in verse 26 whenever they escape. Now, we'll go into 26 in a second as we see what is the result of this assassination. And you can ask ourselves, why is this R-rated humor story in the Bible? Dale Davis, again, tells us. The way the Israelites told this or heard this episode shows that they weren't the least bit embarrassed about it at all. Instead, Israel enjoyed telling about it. 200 years later, they're still telling it this way. They're telling it specifically this way, to embarrass the big buffoon Eaglin. And to let, you can imagine they're telling, remember when we killed, ah, ha, ha, yeah, remember. Like, like you can just see how much they love this. And it says, they enjoy telling it so much so when the writer relates it to us, he writes it specifically and intentionally in a form of humor, with flashes of humor. And what is it meant to teach us? Three specific things that this is supposed to, this is why it's here. These are good. These are really, I think, helpful. It's a perilous matter to oppress and crush God's people. Even if you're a big man like Eaglin, for you also will come quote, the butt of God's joke. Um, That's the first one. The second one is that God makes his people laugh after their sorrow and smile after the funny ways he has a way of delivering their troubles. I think that you can even see that in your own life. Like during difficulties, the Lord still will give you moments of happiness, things that will still bring you joy and make you laugh. And the third one, this might be one of the most important ones for us. Um, There's no reason why God's way must be dull and boring. There's no reason for you to think God's way is dull and boring. Instead, the people who know Yahweh as their God will never lack for excitement. In fact, the humorous way the story is told is Israel's way of rejoicing in the undeserved grace of Yahweh. And it's a form of, narr- in the narrative, a form of praise to Yahweh. So there's no reason for us to, to think, well, if I'm going to follow God, it's going to be dull and boring. I think that's one of the things he's trying to address. And so what happens after Ehud uh, kills the king? He raises up this army, verse 26, and Ehud escaped. Because they were delayed and he passed beyond all these places. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down from the hill country because he's now their leader and they recognize this. And he makes a theological statement here in 28. And he said, follow me. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. God's done this. You can trust me. I'm the leader. I'm the judge. Follow me now. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. Here he is. They killed at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man to escape. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the Lord and the land gave them 80 years of rest. God brought rest again. And this would be the longest period of rest in the book of Judges that they received. 80 straight years of rest. Shalom restored again to the people of God. Now, how does this story point me to Jesus is what you should be saying. And that's a good question. Um, I'm just going to 
combine Othniel and Ehud and say, there's lots of ways we can say, and I've already hinted to a lot of ways of how it points to Jesus. But let me just come back and drive home this gospel jewel, I think, of how this points us to Jesus uh, and say it this way. It points us to Jesus because only, judges can only offer the people of God temporary rest. That's all they can offer, temporary rest. When a judge dies, the people of God turn from God and turn back to evil. But the ultimate judge, Jesus, will never die. He will never die. And therefore, he can actually offer us ultimate rest, ultimate peace with God, ultimate forgiveness. And both Othniel and Ehud show us our desperate need for that. That one offers 40 years, one offers 80 years, but neither one of them offer everlasting peace, everlasting rest, everlasting shalom. And that's actually given to us by our great judge, king, prophet, priest, Messiah, all of the things of the Old Testament, Jesus. He offers us everlasting shalom and rest. So what these judges can't offer, Jesus offers to us. And so... Shalom for all of us has been given and it's an already not yet and it's coming one day ultimately in in heaven. Now, I want to conclude with verse 31. Um, There's one more guy and he doesn't get hardly anything. Of all the judges, he just gets one verse, Shamgar. And he's a pretty awesome dude. Shamgar, the son of Anath, which by the way, aren't Jewish names. So we have a good reason to think that Shamgar is probably not even Jewish and he's a judge, which is awesome that God does that. And after this, after him was Shamgar. This is all we get. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox code, and he saved Israel. That's all we got. Okay. Well, um, an ox code, by the way, is a wooden tool, approximately about eight feet long. Think of a, a spear with an end. They, they use it to goad the ox, like, keep going, ox. And if the ox would kick against it, it would hurt him. So you, you don't kick against the goads. You just... Keep going, and it eventually gets him going. Well, this bad dude, Shamgar, takes one of those jokers and kills 600 Philistines by himself in a, in a battle. That's pretty awesome. But we can ask ourselves, um, <laughs> he gets one sentence, and like, that's it. What do we learn? Um, I think this one sentence, and this is the best thing I can come up with regard, regarding application and thinking about Shamgar. What can I come up with? I think this is, to conclude, maybe the best thing I can come up with. I think this is helpful. I think it's helpful. This one sentence on Shamgar that is in our Bible, especially in this long book of Judges, is really kind of emblematic of you and I. The importance does not really lie in knowing much about Shamgar. We know a lot about Othniel, we know a lot about Ehud, but here we don't know anything. And so the importance doesn't lie in knowing a ton about Shamgar. Instead, it lies in knowing, uh, the importance lies in knowing the God of Shamgar, the one who actually raises him up, uses him, and delivers him. So the reason why it's emblematic of us is because just like Shamgar, he's just a mist. He's just a vapor. He's just a one-sentence verse in the big story of God, and so are we. We're just a one-sentence verse. We're just a mist and vapor in the one huge, large story of God. Therefore, the most wisest, the most worshipful, the, the smartest, most intelligent thing we can do then, since we're just a one-mist, one-verse, short little person, uh, short story in the, in the greater story of God, is to tether our little one short-verse life, mist and vapor in the wind, tether ourselves, tie ourselves to the great story of God, to say, my life isn't about me. Instead, my life is about the big story of God and what he's doing. And in the same way Shamgar did that and was used by God so that people could know God, we want to do the same thing. We want to, like Shamgar, be used by God so that people can know God. Now, don't hear that. Don't me hear discounting your life. Your life is long. You'll live on earth, especially 
in America in, in, in the 21st century, probably a while. You'll probably live 70, 80, 90 years. And that's a long time. So I'm not discounting your life here on earth. I'm just saying in comparison to all the years of eternity, it's a mist. It's a vapor in the wind, as James tells us. And so because of that, the best thing we can do then is not live for ourselves, but instead live for the one who lives for all time. And like Shamgar, be used by him so that people can know him. So we tie ourselves to the good news of the gospel and be used by God to offer, just like uh, the judges, rest to people. Not through a temporary person like Ehud or Othniel, but instead to Christ so they can receive eternal rest forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, message of the gospel that shows us that we are in desperate need, just like these people, that we will, we will turn, we will sin, and that uh, we can't put our hope in men, but we can only put our hope in the God-man, Jesus, who doesn't offer us temporary rest of 48 years, but instead offers us everlasting rest in the cross. And so help us be like Shamgar, that it's more important for people to know about our God than to know us. It's more important for people to hear the good news of the gospel and the rest that Jesus offers than to uh, think that we're a big deal. You love us. We're your sons and daughter and you love us extravagantly. There's no doubt about that. But help us understand that we're still uh, given a short life in comparison to all eternity. And let us be used by you so that people can know you and understand the true rest that's offered to them in Christ. If anybody here doesn't know Jesus, God, save them right now. Help them understand that forgiveness of all their sins is being offered to them at the cross of Jesus right now. And for those that do know Jesus, I pray that they would continually remind themselves of the good news of the gospel. That they would preach this good news to themselves and remember that their only hope is Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.